You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, what's going on? The semester is ending, and that's always, yeah, it's a bittersweet time. Like, I always am going to miss my students after the semester ends, but it's also like when you turn in final grades. Oh, it's cathartic. It's like this feeling of freeness that that only educators understand. Yeah, Off your your back, I think. And the monkeys are on my back. That's a problem (laughs) that will go on past the semester, yes. Of course. Hey, I was wondering, what's the difference between a... A compelling and a non-compelling question. A lot of people have used different terms for what were essential questions and compelling questions. I always hear stuff like that. I think compelling questions are questions that are not only like kind of enduring questions, but they're also really interesting questions. Like the questions we ask of the world, like, why should we go to war? Or how come I can't find my keys? Stuff like that. I remember being a kid at the dinner table and my father would ask me something like, how was school today? And that's not really a good question because that just requires a one-word answer. I said, fine. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, well, what yeah. did you do? And then I would just give a list of a list of things that I did that day. These are not really compelling questions, and they didn't yeah. really make for great dinner table conversation. And eventually, you know, we got into more of like the why. He, you know, he, he got better at questioning at the dinner table, I think, as we matured, which is good. I guess when we were kids, we used to just like blurt everything out and it was very interesting. But yeah, in high school, we didn't really speak that much at the dinner table until he had some better questions. Maybe parents in like their parent manual they get when babies are born that it should have a question, a question section. (laughs) About questioning. Yeah. I mean, like, how do you ask your kid questions and get responses that will build a solid conversational and relationship base for life? Well, why don't we play act this? We're at the dinner table. I'm, you know, a teenage Michael. I have my yes. hat backwards, I imagine. I have so many questions about Teenage Michael, but I'll just... No, I don't. I didn't wear a hat at the dinner table. I don't think <laughs> we'd be allowed to. That wasn't my like main concern. I just would like to meet Teenage Michael. But okay, go ahead. Sorry. What's up? Hey, Michael. Yeah. How was second period today? What? How was school today? Did you hang out with your friends? Yeah. Well, that must have been fun. I guess. Isn't that like teaching? It's isn't it like when you ask a bad question, you just kind of try to like then like supplement the answer with what you yeah. kind of hoped. <laughs> or you okay. want to add in and why? So for people who are kind of sitting here saying like, where is this going and what's happening right now? We're going to talk a little bit more about the types of questions teachers ask today, which is actually really, really important. Like it's the basis of like good lessons and how to lead discussions. And so Michael and I clearly don't know what we're doing. And so we brought in someone who actually does. And so we would like to welcome to the podcast, Rebecca Mueller. Hi, guys. Nice to be with you today. It's great to have you here with us, Rebecca Mueller. Thank you for enduring that entire familial <laughs> conversation. I think it was realistic in so many ways. <laughs> Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? 
Yes. So I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina Upstate in Spartanburg, South Carolina, but I spent the vast majority of my life in Kentucky, including 10 years as a social studies teacher at Bryan Station High School in Lexington, Kentucky. And I also did my doctoral work at the University of Kentucky. And both of those definitely kind of factored into the type of research that I've been choosing to do over the past few years. And so you know our previous guest, Kathy Swan, I'm sure. I know Kathy Swan quite well, yes. And I'm I'm grateful for that relationship. (laughs) Well, and so for people that don't remember, you know, you have the winter break to beef up on your visions of education. (laughs) We got a backlog. (laughs) We got a backlog. Yeah, Kathy Swan was on episode 10, and she talked about the C3 framework and the creation of it. And I know that Rebecca was involved in that process. So do you want to tell us a little bit about, I mean, the C3 framework is supposed to kind of be a guide for social studies teachers to do good work and have good questions and become good parents, right? Um, So (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being involved in that process? Involved might be... um an overstatement. But I was privy to getting to just kind of hear some of the processing through that. So kind of figuring out what what shape this document was going to take and kind of what its function was going to be. And so for me coming, these discussions were happening in my first year of graduate school. So my first year out of the classroom, out of the high school classroom. And so for me, it was just really interesting to kind of listen to deep, thoughtful conversations about the direction that all these people wanted social studies to go and or we've been saying the same thing about what we want social studies to be for a long time why isn't it happening and is there anything that we can do to make that kind of push things forward a little bit more and i, I do recommend listening to the episode it seemed like there were some tension in the room which is great like i love it when people get so passionate enough that they want to you know argue someone you know not with fisticuffs but like with words (laughs) yeah and and i kind of came in toward the end of it where in some ways the controversy was less about what was going to be inside the document and more the common core backlash had started by that point and so how does the social studies document kind of negotiate these problems that were happening on the national level about other kinds of national frameworks and documents. And certainly the taking action piece was continues to be something that teachers and educators struggle with a lot and kind of the role in social studies and how teachers are supposed to uh, make this happen and if they feel like they can make it happen. Yeah, and if you're interested in the fisticuffs part, episode <laughs> 40 actually was called the Social Studies Wars. We had Ron <laughs> Evans on. So. No, but these these kind of debates have been happening in the social studies for a long time, and we're really good at just moving the field forward. Just kidding, we're not. We keep fighting over the same things. But thinking back on your own high school teaching, Rebecca, what did you think about questions? Like, was that a, something like that was on your mind, especially before you got kind of like maybe we're a little more privy to what was happening with C3. I mean, do you feel like that's something you struggled with? Oh, I definitely struggled with it. And I think it's because, uh, well, you know, it was kind of interesting. By the end of my career, I was trying, I was on the cusp of in some ways trying to do what the C3 framework is suggesting, right, kind of really rooting your instruction in these questions. And there's certainly, again, lots of teachers who are doing that and everyone kind of gets to it at their own pace. But I think what a lot of teachers struggle with is there is the type of question 
that we hear a lot, right? So the kinds of questions you were asking teenage Michael earlier. And teachers are asking the teacher version of that, just really short, pointed questions that, that aren't interesting. And then teachers sometimes, I think, and mistake maybe isn't the right word, but then they look at the kinds of questions that they encounter on a DBQ or a free response question or, or a textbook question that's written as an essay question, and it's still really no better. And so I think it takes a big jump and kind of a leap of faith to ask the kinds of questions that the C3 framework is asking, is, is encouraging teachers to ask or encouraging teachers to let students ask. And when you are so accustomed to the other kind of question, um, it's difficult to make that shift. And for me, I know sometimes I asked what I thought, and maybe they weren't, compelling questions or interesting questions, and students don't know how to react to them. And that can be discouraging in its own way for teachers, too. I'm imagining teenage Michael getting a compelling question and just being unprepared for it after lots of <laughs> one-word answer questions coming for years. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably. <laughs> so we started a, a relationship with uh, NCSS uh, in which we are going to highlight some of the uh, articles in, in their journals, uh, and they do have many of them. And your article that you wrote for social education uh, was called Calibrating Your Compelling Question, Teacher Construction Prompts to Assist Question Development. So first of all, congratulations for you know Thanks. being published. Secondly, I really like the article. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I was really excited to have you on to talk about quick, because I feel like developing compelling questions isn't just a social studies thing. It actually could be apl applicable to many other disciplines. So I'm really, really excited, particularly about this, this episode. Do you mind talking a little bit about what you did for your, for your research? Yeah, sure. Just to give you a little contextual background. So not only did I work with Kathy Swan during the whole C3 framework thing, but the state of Kentucky also started developing or revising their social study standards while I was doing my doctoral work. And that process is ongoing. Um, it started back in like 2003 and it hasn't come to fruition yet. But early drafts of it were clearly influenced by C3 framework and used some of that language. Inquiries not new, asking questions is it new, but this idea of putting it really found it in a foundational way in a standards document, particularly at a state level, I thought was kind of new. And so I was curious about how teachers were responding and reacting to these tools, because we all know that you can tell a teacher to do something, but if we don't want to, we're not going to. So how were teachers looking at these changes in a positive light? Were they excited about them? And how are they making sense of them? So I worked with six social studies teachers, they were civics teachers in the state of Kentucky, and really wanted to try to figure out from this pool how they understood this concept and how they were actually going to create these questions. Because again, there's stuff out there about what makes a good question, but there's not a lot out there about how teachers actually create them. And I think that's really important. If we're going to help teachers who are, feel less confident in their questioning ability, then I think we need to be able to give them some more concrete guidance on how to do that. So instead of having teachers just go search online, you know, compelling question for, you know, War of 1812, it's actually, mm -hmm. you know, their own development that you're looking at. Yeah, because if you ask teachers what they think are the key traits of a compelling question, relevance comes up, right? And that's kind of historically relevant, you know, that's, that's something we hear a lot. So relevant to what, right? I don't think in a compelling question, it's just relevant to the curriculum or relevant to the content. I think it has to be relevant to your context. 
And so that means that the same question isn't going to, as I make sense of it, I think as these teachers did too, isn't going to fly in every classroom. It's not going to fly in every year because it's not so much about being relevant to the teacher or the content or the test. It's about being relevant to the students. And so you can't just rely on canned questions. They might be a starting point, but I think you've got to figure out how you're going to make that really work for your students, right? To compel them to want to do what Teenage Michael doesn't want to do. Sure, sure Teenage Dan was the same way. And me. <laughs> We're leaving Teenage Dan out of this. He was, he, he was a mess. Because those canned questions you get sometimes from the district aren't very good. For example, when I taught the War of 1812, what year did the War of 1812 happen was not a very compelling question I learned. I had a question. That was a question on a college test once. It was great. <laughs> it was like, okay, <laughs> awesome. I mean, sometimes those gimme questions, like they're just, you know, they're kind of nice. They're, you know, you know, they boost my self-esteem because I can get that right on multiple choice thing. But Yeah. <laughs> I really love this focus because questions are, again, what drives student learning. Again, I love how you actually use the compel as a verb that compels students to actually think about the topics we want. I read an, an article by Abby Reisman, who's at Penn um, recently. She does really good work. And I remember her giving advice. She was talking about being in a classroom and they were working on a lesson about John Brown. And the question all teachers want to ask about John Brown is like, was he a patriot or was he a tyrant or oh, yeah, whatever? Or. Or, you're a hero or villain. You're Everyone's great. I, I remember she pointed <laughs> out that some of those questions actually are very important and students will be interested. Um, but I remember her pointing out too that, well, like, what are you actually asking them to study? All her documents the teachers were using had nothing to do with that actual topic of whether he was crazy or whether he was a hero. And so she did a really good job of what she said, I think, was reorienting them back to the text and asking questions about that during the lesson. And so it's interesting. I was thinking about, is there sometimes a difference there between compelling questions that drive like our understandings of the world, whether John Brown's a hero or not, and then the ones that redirect to the text, which I think in that case, she said better questions would have been was this a smart idea to like do this raid on Harper's Ferry? Um, because that's what the documents actually had more to do with. Well, I think if you look at it within the context, if you think about the term compelling question within the context of the C3 framework, then I think it is connected to sources in some way, right? Because it's, you know, compelling questions is dimension one of this arc. So it's this idea of you are rooting your investigation of whatever you're investigating in a question because you know you put a question mark at the end and for many of us that it just kind of invites us to want to answer it right as opposed to a period where you're like well okay that's done but i do think that the kind of question you ask does need to relate to the end goal you have right and that's something that the that the teachers thought about and they often thought about it afterward right so they didn't really think about the functionality of the question until they tried to do it and then as in, in light of what you mentioned about Abby Reisman realized that that question wasn't accomplishing what it is that you want it to do and so what I found from these teachers is they realized that this question has to balance these three things right it has to be worthwhile disciplinarily it has to be about something meeting and interesting it has to relate to and engage students in some way, like in a legitimate and often emotional way. And that's where it can become kind of flippant. We have to be careful about it. But it also has to lead students where you want them to go. And you need to be able to support students along that journey. 
And so I think in my mind, a compelling question sits at a bigger level, but sometimes you have to morph it and support it and revise it along the way to make it more functional. Do you mind giving us like an example of a, a good compelling question or feel free to have some compelling questions that are not so good and, and we can talk about why? Yeah. So, and I will say, I'm going to preface this by saying that I think that compelling is a really subjective term. And that's what makes it, I think, particularly challenging and also really difficult to help teachers become more comfortable with it because it is, it's in many ways in the eyes of the beholder because there's this contextual piece. As part of my research, I had the teachers rate the compellingness of all the other participants' questions. And they didn't agree on a single one, right? <laughs> so none of them. They were all, and in many ways, they were really evenly split. And I think I mentioned this under the, I'm trying to remember which one, I have the article in front of me, can't remember. This idea of, are great men or women chosen to be president? Right. I can see that in, in a historical context and in a contemporary context being really interesting to students. See, I think a big thing is about phrasing it. So phrasing it that way, are great men or women chosen to be president, is different than it's something that gets really long and worded. I think that a non-compelling question in that it doesn't really provoke emotion, it doesn't connect with students, are the kinds of questions you get like, what are the social, political, and economic ramifications of blank? right? These, that we hear a lot in, in history courses because they reflect the kinds of things that we have to cover. They don't necessarily reflect these core interesting issues that maybe get at that idea, right? But get it at, it, at it in an idea that students actually want to talk about it. Understanding compelling questions is really whether we understand our curriculum and what matters about it, mm -hmm. right? Not only to ourselves and to our society, but to our students. And that's a tough line. I always think about that. I, when I have my social studies students preparing lessons, I often, in, on their lesson plan thing, I have them two, two uh, boxes. One box is, what types of citizens does this lesson prepare? And then the next box is, will students find this relevant? And that's hard. It must have been interesting for the teachers to actually get together to talk about their compelling questions. Oh, they didn't talk together. Okay. For this study, they didn't talk together, but I have been in circumstances, like with my own pre-service teachers, where they're talking with one another. And in my experience in developing my own compelling questions and in working with other teachers, it is particularly helpful for them to talk in, in collaboration with one another, um, in part because of the subjectivity piece. And you got to get it outside of your head to see if it really is going to generate a response or not. I really like these teacher-constructed prompt section you have in your article and these questions that you ask to help people develop compelling questions. Does it promote digging deeper? Is it debatable? Do I want to answer it? Would my students care about it? Is it too academic? Does it lead to more questions? Those are really good ways to think about if your compelling question is good. Those are good questions about questions. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, those are all words that the teachers were using. So, you know, in this article, I really wanted to capitalize on the process of the actual teachers, in part because I wanted it to sound like the conversations that teachers have in their own heads and that they have in collaboration with other people, right? Like, these are things that we would actually ask. You know, they're not overly formal, they're not overly jargoned, they're things that we would ask one another. And I think, particularly going back to the C3 framework and this idea that ultimately we want students to be asking these questions, that 
you could see students asking these questions too, right? So it makes the tool a bit more accessible, hopefully, or seen as something that we can do. And that, I think, is a fine line, because on one hand, we we do ask questions all the time, right? We want teachers, this is something to feel comfortable with, but this is also a little bit different. So how can we get them to shift that thinking somewhat? In our last episode, we did a wrap-up of, of CUFA and the NCSS conference, and there was a team of teachers from Glendora, California, who I talked to, who have been working on the C3 framework. And that was one of the things that they mentioned, is that their students would have these aha moments during class and be like, I have a compelling question. And... <laughs> assuming that's what their voices sounded like. And <laughs> and so they talked a lot about how that became a, almost like a disposition or a habit of thinking is that students would start seeing like what mattered in the curriculum and help develop the questions. And that was really cool to hear. And they sounded like really good teachers. I think that maybe in schools, we should give students light bulbs. So when they do have their own, you know, aha moment, they can just screw it into the top of their head and they light up. And that way, you know, it's more noticeable. <laughs> So, Rebecca, what advice do you have for teachers trying to come up with their own compelling questions? I think part of it is just do it. <laughs> All right. Create an opportunity, create space, not be scared to try it out. Not My teachers weren't necessarily required to implement these questions in their classrooms, but a couple of them did. And when they did and they saw the positive reactions and the positive interactions with their students, that made them really excited about the promise and the potential of this tool, and they want to go back and do it again. But if they hadn't said, okay, I'm just going to ask this question, I'm just going to go for it, then they wouldn't have necessarily had that own personal affirmation to keep to keep trying. So I think part of it is is to just create some space, carve out some space with your colleagues and do it. Um, and to also strive for a question that looks and sounds different, right? So that looks and sounds different from the what are the social, economic and political effects of blah, blah, blah. Because I think, you know, they chose the author, the writers, the creators of the C3 framework, I think chose the word compelling for a reason, right? That it should evoke a response, that it should make us, you know, feel something in some way, right? That's what really exciting learning is. You feel something about it. And we want our students to be feeling things, I think, especially in a social studies class, because we ultimately want them to act. And are they going to act if they really don't have any kind of emotional response? I think it's really important, and this is where I think teachers have the biggest struggle, is they have to think a little bit more about the phrasing of their question. I think a compelling question, the phrasing is important because that phrasing is in some ways what kind of encourages students to react or not react. And so that's why even if the question is about typical content, right? Several of the folks in my study did things about the constitution and kind of the social contract. And you could ask a question about, you know, what, how is the Constitution a social contract? Well, so what? But if you get to this idea of does the Constitution really protect you, that phrasing, this idea of, you know, protection or does it treat you fairly, you know, those are emotions that kids can connect to. And so trying to make that more forward in your questions. I love that question. That actually, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh my God, does it? What parts of it protect me? What parts of it doesn't protect me? That's really cool. <laughs> okay. I'm compelled. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I love this idea of using compelling questions to really drive the curriculum because it does make your class inquiry based and that can be a challenge for teachers. And so it's something I'm already rethinking. I just made a note to myself to go through my course and, and you know, instead of having a unit just with a name, maybe it could have a question that's going to drive our studies. But then even within our class, different activities and things could have their own compelling questions that really drive activities. So 
maybe I became a better teacher today. <laughs> I think the fact that you talk about kind of scale, I think that's also an important element of compelling questions and of inquiry, right? That you can kind of scale up and scale down, that they don't have to be grand. They can be smaller in scope, but it's, um, you know, it's about kind of the intentionality in some ways. I've come up with a great compelling question. Now, how do I use it? So again, I think that's where part of the question that teachers have to ask themselves, part of the process of developing is, um, do I have, and I mentioned this in here, do I have the resources and time to get them there, right? So a, when you're thinking about the question, it's supposed to be the beginning and the end of the process. So you start with, you know, that's your starting point, right? So now what do I need to do to get students to be able to answer that question and then figuring that out, right? So this is where if we go back to the C3 framework, you think about the supporting questions. So what are the smaller kind of topics that uh, teachers and students need to consider in order to be prepared to answer that bigger question? You're gonna start to tease that out. And along the way, you might find that your compelling question, going back to what Dan said about Abby Reisman, isn't necessarily doing what you think you want it to do, right? So you might say, now what? That's an awesome, compelling question. And then you realize that when you start to determine how you're going to get students to answer that, that the question doesn't do what you want it to do, right? So you have to always be circling back and making sure that that question aligns with your instructional goals, right? You're, you're using this question as a tool. It doesn't stand on its own. It has to help you live into the instruction, help your students live into the instruction that you're hoping to create. That is my favorite part of the process. Like when things are not working out, you're like, wait, why? And then you get to go back and try to like, you know, figure it out to do it better for next time. Because, you know, your question might not work out for the first time or you might realize that. But as you move forward, you should be becoming a bit more skilled in doing it. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone should make sure to get the newest issue of Social Education, the November-December 2017 issue, and the very first article, and again, is Calibrating Your Compelling Compass, Teacher Constructive Prompts to Assist Question Development. And so it can be something that can really help you and the teachers in your school um, develop great questions that are part of great lessons, that are part of great learning, that lead to a great society. We have figured it all out here at the Visions <laughs> of Education podcast. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate your interest in the work. Thanks. Now, Rebecca, let's say I have yes. follow-up questions or I just want to chat. What are some ways, <laughs> <laughs> how can people find you or your work online? You can contact me, obviously, through my USC Upstate email account, which is R-M-U-E-L-L-E-2, the number two. For um, some reason, they didn't put an R there. I'm not sure why. Thank you again so much for joining us. And we definitely do hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thanks, guys. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you are doing something creative, fun in education, or if you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere you want us to be. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, and that helps people find this podcast. So just do it, as Nike would say. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Cool.